Therefore, they were elected before the foundation of the world with that predestination in which God foreknew what he himself would do. But they were elected out of the world with that calling whereby God fulfilled that which he predestinated. That comes from a book called On the Predestination of the Saints written by Augustine of Hippo. One of the most disputed theological opinions of our modern church era is the fight we have over the concept of predestination and election. Does God predestine some and reprobate others? Does God choose for some for salvation and damn the rest? Is predestination conditional or unconditional? Doesn't predestination destroy free will? These are the things that we debate today. And Facebook is filled with these conversations happening all the time, all around the world. But believe it or not, the debate over predestination is not new. It's much older than Facebook. It's much older than Calvinists and Arminians. It's older than the Protestants versus the Roman Catholics. It's even over Thomas Aquinas, who dedicated so much time to writing on this issue. This goes back at least to Augustine of Hippo, whom I just quoted, who was writing in the very, very early 5th century. So whether you're ready or not, our biblical text this morning is going to force us to set the record straight on predestination. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, please? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And when you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. As far as the reading of God's word, please be seated. Paul begins the passage that we just read in verse 3, praising God the Father, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless God the Father, he calls us to do so. And he immediately tells us why he is blessing God. And he tells us that I think God the Father should be blessed because he has first blessed us. We bless God because he first blessed us. Us. Why is God the Father worthy of being blessed? Because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And take note of the kind of blessings that Paul wants us to focus on today. Spiritual blessings. Blessings that are located in the heavenly places. Now this does not mean that God should not or cannot be blessed for what we would call carnal blessings. Things like food and shelter and family. Of course, God is worthy of being praised and blessed for all good things. As a matter of fact, James 1.17 tells us that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 
every single good thing in your life, think of anything in your life that's good, give glory to God. He gave it to you. All good things, every perfect gift comes from our Father. So certainly, we can bless God for all good things. Food, health, cars, jobs, you name it. But here, Paul wants us to focus on what I would argue he's considering the blessings that are greater than the blessings of this life. Blessings that are greater than job promotions and food and shelter, but spiritual blessings. Blessings that carry on into heaven are heavenly blessings. That is what Paul wants to praise God for. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing there is provided we believe in Jesus Christ. And what is one of these spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with? Well, Paul immediately turns his attention to what I would argue is the greatest and the foundation, and I think that's what Paul is telling us, the greatest of all spiritual blessings, election. God has predestined you. He has chosen you. Paul wants us to praise God the Father for predestination. This term has obviously become quite controversial today. And this is typically the heart in debate. If you, are, if you grew up in the theological world, if you grew up in the Christian church, you've probably seen Calvinists and Arminians debate. And this is essentially, there's lots of things to debate, but this is kind of the heart and soul of it. Does God predestine people to salvation? This is the Calvinist versus Arminian or the Reformed versus the non-Reformed to use contemporary language. But it's important for us to be fair the debate that we have in Christianity today is not over whether God predestines, right? It's not over the fact that some Christians believe in predestination and others don't. Because predestination is a biblical word. It's right here. Election, predestined, we have it twice in our text. So technically, every Christian believes in predestination. If you're a person who doesn't believe in predestination, you just need to repent and become a Christian. Because it's in the Bible, right? It's there. The card of the debate is what does the word mean, Right? That's what it means. What does the word mean? Everyone agrees that God predestines, but what, is, what does that mean? Or more applicably, Paul wants us to praise God for election. What specifically are we praising him for? What is happening in election that makes God worthy of our praise? We want to answer that question today from at least from Paul's perspective. What is predestination? Let me be very upfront. Let me just sort of show my cards before we dive into the text. Obviously, this is a Reformed church, which means that we do teach the Calvinistic understanding of what predestination or election means. And I do use those terms synonymously. Some people want to say they're different. I'm using those terms the same way. Predestination and election are the same thing. And let me just give you a brief sketch over how Calvinists or the Reformed world, and we would argue Augustine argued, of how we define election. And we would simply say this in short, that God chose a particular group of people from before time, not according to anything they did or would do, to be saved. And the rest of mankind he chose not to save. Those who are not elect cannot be saved. And only the elect ever will be saved. Though there are some differences between, say, John Calvin and and St. Augustine, this is also the view that Augustine argued against Pelagius with. What I just quoted from is exactly what Augustine argued against the Pelagians, what I just gave you. Now, admittedly, I think for every person in this room, maybe, 
Some people I'm judging, I think, maybe didn't have a problem with that. Some of you I know well enough. But I'm willing to bet most of the people in this room were not super comfortable with those words that just came out of my mouth. Doesn't feel good. Doesn't sound good. For many of you, it definitely doesn't sound like anything you grew up with. To hear something like that, this is a hard teaching for most of us. And so that's why my goal in this sermon today is I want you to see that the Reformation actually got this right. I want to show you that the Reformed understanding of predestination and election is biblical. And so as we work through this text, I am going to try my hardest to lovingly try to refute some of the common objections to that interpretation along the way. And I think the most helpful way to break this text down is to use an outline that a great Reformed theologian, Charles Hodge, made of this, where he identified six elements of what predestination is. So basically, I want to define predestination with these six points here. So six elements to help you understand predestination. Number one, predestination is of individuals. Predestination is a verb, it's an action on God's part, and it's of individuals. God predestines people. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us. Stop there. The object of God's choosing are people. He chose us. He chose a people. This means that before time, which we'll get to in a second, God looked upon and chose to save an us, a we, a people group. Those who believe in Christ today do so because God chose to save them. He chooses individuals. He chooses us. He chooses we. He chooses people. Now, the reason this matters so much is because one of the more common ways to try to interpret this text in a non-reformed way is to come up with an interpretation that sounds something like this. God is not choosing who would be in Christ to believe. He's not choosing people to save. He's choosing that whoever would believe in Christ, those people are the ones he would save. So he's not choosing people to be in Christ. He's just saying whoever is in Christ, I'll save those people. So what this eventually actually boils down to is that the object of predestination and that interpretation is not a people, but a plan. Right? God didn't predestine people. He predestined a plan. He predestined a plan of salvation. And that plan is that whoever chooses to be in Christ, I'll save those people. That's predestining a plan. That's predestining a way of salvation. And we agree, we agree, God did predestine that. God did predestine a way of salvation. He did predestine a plan of salvation. But that's not what this text is saying. The grammar just doesn't allow it. God did not predestine an abstract noun. He predestined a personal people. He chose us. He chose we. He predestined a people, not a noun. He predestined something plural. Us and we are plurals. A plan is singular. This is a personal plural noun that is the object of predestination. All throughout this text, the object of predestination is a personal plural noun. It's not a singular impersonal noun. God did not predestine a way of salvation in this text. He predestined people. Predestination is of individuals. Now, I, I, I will agree, I will grant that there is some ambiguity in verse 4 as to how do 
at the beginning of verse 4 as to how to understand, is it just those in Christ he predestined or did he predestine them to become in Christ? There's some ambiguity, but I would argue the end of 4 and then certainly in verse 5 puts to rest that ambiguity. Because look at the end of verse 4. It says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He has chosen we to become holy and blameless. That's the end goal of predestination. Whatever is being predestined is being predestined for something. And Paul tells us the end goal of whatever is being predestined is being predestined to become holy and blameless in God's sight. And here's the problem. A plan of salvation doesn't become holy and blameless in God's sight. People do. Sinners do. God predestined people to become holy. He predestined people to stand before him blameless. He did not predestine a plan of salvation to stand before him blameless, right? That doesn't make sense. So let me just briefly remind you before we move on to verse 5. If you find yourself on judgment day, standing before God in glory with a resurrected body, holy and blameless, just know that you're there because he chose that end for you. That was his choice. It wasn't your choice. It wasn't your works. It wasn't. He did that. You remember that on Judgment Day. Just think, I remember Pastor Colin said something in the last life, and he said, God did this. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. By putting Jesus at the end of the sentence, verse 5 is much more clear than verse 4. A plan of salvation is not being predestined to become adopted to God the Father. People, we are being predestined to become adopted. God doesn't adopt plants. He adopts children. He adopts people. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you've been adopted to God through God, Jesus Christ, God did that. He chose that. He chose you. He predestines people. In other words, think about it this way. What the contrary view is doing is it's actually reversing the logic of this text. Because it's, it's ultimately saying that predestination is the fruit of adoption. Right? If God is predestining the plan of salvation here and not the people to be saved, then here's what that means. That means that God is saying whoever becomes adopted through Jesus Christ, I'll predestine those people. That's the plan of salvation interpretation. Whoever becomes adopted, I predestine those people. Whoever becomes in Christ, I'll elect those people. So what's coming first? Adoption is coming first, and election is the fruit of that. You're adopted, therefore I elect you. You're in Christ, therefore I predestine you. In this interpretation, predestination is the fruit of adoption. It's the fruit of being in Christ. But when we read the text, isn't it the exact opposite? Adoption comes from predestination. Predestination does not come from adoption. Do you see that? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Predestination leads to adoption. Adoption doesn't lead to predestination. Again, the point I'm trying to make here is that God predestines individuals, at least according to this text. That's our first element. Our second element is this. Predestination is in Christ. Predestination is in Christ. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ to the purpose of his will. This phrase, in Christ, or in the beloved, or through Jesus, is repeated constantly throughout this opening chapter. It's all over the place. And so what does that mean to us? It means it's very important. It's very, very important. If we're going to understand predestination rightly, we cannot miss how crucial it is that God's plan to save his elect has always been centered on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has always been the center mechanism of this plan. In other words, let me put it this way. What this means that we've been predestined to be saved in Christ, it means God doesn't just predestine the ends, he predestines the means. He doesn't just predestine the ends, but he predestines the means also. Here's what that is, here's what I'm trying to communicate. Some people who are first presented with this idea of predestination, they think about it wrongly. And they think predestination looks something like this. God selects a certain group of people and he says, no matter what happens, I'm going to save them at the end of, the t- at the end of time. So maybe some of them believe in Jesus, maybe some of them don't. But guess what? They're elect, so they're all going to go to heaven. That's a view where God predestines the end, you're going to go to heaven, but he has no control or process over the means. You can do whatever you want, you can live however you want, you can believe whatever you want. doesn't matter what you do, you're elect, so you're going to go to heaven. That's a view where God predestines the ends and not the means. He leaves the means to us, but he takes care of the ends. But what Paul is adamant to tell us over and over and over and over again is that's the wrong view of predestination. Predestination is not just predestining where you're going to go when you die. It's, the, it's predestining your entire salvation. In other words, predestination does not deny that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. It's not like there are two ways to be saved. You can either believe in Jesus and then go to heaven, or you can be elect, and then it doesn't matter. You'll go to heaven no matter what. That's not what predestination is. Predestination is predestining us to be holy and blameless through Christ. God is going to put us in Christ. He's predestining the means of our salvation just as much as he's predestining our salvation itself. So let me say very, very clearly, there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. No one will be saved outside of Jesus. You cannot be saved if you are not by faith united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because even election takes place through Christ. Want to know what's the easiest way to know that you're elect? You want to know how you know if you've been predestined? Do you believe in Jesus? If your answer to that is a true and sincere yes, you're elect. Because election is in Christ. That's the only direction God ever takes his elect into salvation. He never elects someone through a back door into heaven. It's always in and through Jesus. There's no salvation outside of Christ. The elect have been chosen in Christ to be adopted to God through Christ to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, it's always, always, always centered in Christ. He didn't just predestine you to go to heaven one day. He predestined you to believe in Jesus Christ. Predestination is of individuals and it's in Christ. Number three, predestination is from eternity. It's from eternity. When did this predestination take place? Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is Paul's way of saying from eternity. Before creation even took place. Before God made the world, made matter, made anything in it. He elected to save people in Christ. 
Now, let me ask you this rhetorically. Why is this important to know? Why does this matter? It seems to me what should matter to me is whether I'm elect or not, whether I believe in Jesus or not. I don't care when God made that choice. I just hope he made it. Why does it matter when God predestined me? Well, the reason that this matters is because what Paul is trying to teach us, what he's trying to communicate to us by telling us when this took place, is he's trying to tell us that the election of the elect had nothing to do with them. God did not elect choice meets. People, oh man, those people are great. I got to have them on my team. Oh my goodness, could you look at that guy's faith? So much faith. I, I want that guy on my team. I'm drafting him. This is not the NFL draft where you prove yourself and because you're such a superstar, because you're so great, every God is just clamoring to get you on his team. Election had nothing to do with you. He did not choose you because you were so great or because you believed or because you were some holy. It had nothing to do with your choices. It had nothing to do with any inherent virtue in you. And how do we know this? How do we know it's not based upon you? Because you didn't exist. You didn't even exist. Paul's trying to tell us you are not elect because you're a better person than the non-elect. Because you're greater or because you earned your predestination. It's the exact opposite of this. You didn't earn it. This is why a really important uh, terminology the and, and throughout Reformed literature, typically election is not called predestination or election. The more common term in Reformed lit literature is to refer to it as unconditional election. Unconditional election. That adverb at the beginning is very, very important because like I said, everyone agrees with predestination. Everybody agrees with election. They're biblical words. They're all over the place. Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 9. I could go on and on. These are biblical words. The question is what do they mean? And the other common interpretation other than the plan interpretation that people come up with to refute the Calvinist understanding is what we call conditional election. That yes, God elects people to be saved, but he elects them based upon something about them. He elected them because they met a certain condition. Sometimes they'll say, because you believed, then you were elected, or because God saw that you had the desire to believe, then you were elected. But there was some kind of virtue in you, something about you different than the non-elect, and God said, okay, that's who I want. He elected you because you met a condition. So the heart and soul of this debate is this question, not if predestination is true, biblical word, it is true, but what does it mean? Is election conditional or unconditional? Did God elect you because of something you did or something you are, or, did it, was, un, or was it not because of any condition that you met? And the argument is that Paul's timing that because election is from eternity, he's trying to teach us it's unconditional. It can't be based upon you because you didn't exist. And so here's typically how the conditionalists understand it. They say, well, I get that election is from eternity, but here's the good news. God is beyond time, is he not? God can see all things, past, present, and future. So even though God was in eternity, he was still able to see the future. He was still able to see that I would believe in Jesus. He was able to see that I, I would have a desire to follow Christ. And so even though it happened from eternity, it can still be based on me because God can see me in the future. So this idea is that God saw my virtue would happen and then elected me from eternity on the basis of that virtue he saw in me. So it's a conditional election. 
But this interpretation completely turns Paul's argument on its head here. This is the exact opposite of the point Paul is trying to make. I would argue that this makes election entirely pointless in two completely different ways. The first way is that if God is electing us because of some future virtue on our part, then why did he have to elect us before time? Why not just elect us in time? You see how that understanding makes the timing irrelevant. What's the difference between God saying, uh, in, in 2022, Colin Brooks is going to believe and I elect him because he's believed? Or just waiting for 2022 to show up, I believe, and he says, okay, you believed, I elect you. If election is the reward of my faith, then it doesn't matter whether it happened when I believed or before I believed. So Paul telling us that it happened before time is just a waste of ink at this point. That doesn't matter because it happened before time, but it still happened because of something you did. So why not just wait till I do it and elect me? You see how Paul is trying to teach us something by telling us it's before time. And if, if, if election is conditional, the before time part doesn't matter. If our answer is, well, God is outside of time, so he sees all things present. Well, then why did Paul tell us that it was before time? Did Paul know that God knew all things? <laughs> did Paul know that God's outside of time? I think Paul knew that. I think Paul understood that. He's trying to teach us something here. The second way that this destroys the concept of election is it makes the verb, right? Election is an action. It's something God does. It makes it totally irrelevant. Let me ask you, in, this, in a conditional election view, what is election doing? What's it accomplishing? Here's what you can't say. You can't say, well, election is accomplishing my faith. No, because God saw that you would believe before he elected you, right? In this view, again, election is a reward for faith. But Paul is trying to argue consistently here that faith is the fruit of election. You are not elected because you believe. You believe because you're elected. That's Paul's logic. And if you go the other way, then election isn't accomplishing anything. Oh, God elected me, but I was going to believe whether he did or not. <laughs> What's it doing? You see, it destroys the time language from before time, and it just destroys the verb itself. It's an irrelevant action. It's redundant. Hey, you already believe. Congratulations, you're elect, even though you were already saved when you believe. So you already believed and you already saved, but I'll just call you elect now. It's a title. It does nothing. But in Paul's logic, election causes something. There's a domino effect to election. By the way, in case you're just still unconvinced, I know I've been ranting passionately, but volume doesn't equal logic. So in case you're still unconvinced, I really think Paul makes this point even more clearly. Turn to Romans chapter 9 with me. Turn back just a couple books, a few books. To Romans chapter 9, I think Paul here is going to explain, I'm not even going to look at how Paul uh, talks about predestination and election in Romans chapter 9. I want us just to look at why Paul tells us the timing of these things. Look at Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by the one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So Paul tells us that when God elected, and by the way, you can define election however you want for the sake of our argument right now. I don't care how you define election. Whatever election means, God elected Jacob, and he did not elect Esau, and Paul tells us when God made that choice. And when did God make the choice to elect Jacob and not Esau? Before they were born. Now, Paul immediately tells us why that matters. Why did God elect them before they were born rather than just waiting in time till they met the condition and elected them? He elected them before they were born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls. What's Paul trying to say? That because God chose Jacob before he was born, what conclusion are you supposed to draw from that? Therefore, he didn't choose Jacob because of works. He didn't choose Jacob because of something Jacob did good. He wasn't born yet. Why did he choose Jacob before he was born? Not because of works, before he had done anything at all, so that God's purpose of election might stand. God chose Jacob before he was born so that we would know this is God's choice and not Jacob's victory. This is something God chose. It's not something Jacob earned. How do I know that? Because it happened before he was born. In other words, if the conditionalists are right, I could refute Paul so easily in this text. Like seriously, I can just refute Paul right now. Are you ready for it? The Apostle Paul, you are wrong in Romans chapter 9 because guess what? God is outside of time. He knew Jacob's works before Jacob was born. So he did elect Jacob on the basis of his works, but he saw those works before he was born. Refuted. Paul's refuted. You've just got a fallible Bible now. I just refuted Paul. God knew Jacob's works before he was born, so God could have elected Jacob on the basis of his works, even though it was before he was born. Paul refuted. Obviously, that's not how Paul's thinking. Paul's saying Jacob was elected before he was born to teach us it has nothing to do with his works. And so as we go back to Ephesians 1, I ask you the question again. Verse 4 says, you were elected before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It's unconditional. It has nothing to do with your works. That you chose God and others didn't. That you were virtuous and others weren't. It had nothing to do with you. You have been elected to become holy. It's a backwards reading of Paul. And by the way, this is the exact interpretation that Pelagius brought to Augustine. And that's why Augustine told him this. Let us then understand the calling whereby they become elected. Not those who are elected because they have believed, but who are elected that they may believe. For the Lord himself also sufficiently explains this calling when he tells us, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. For if they had been elected because they had believed, they themselves would certainly have first chosen him by believing in him so that they should deserve to be elected. But Paul takes away this supposition altogether. Augustine was saying the same thing hundreds and hundreds of years ago. If God elected people because of their faith, because of their works, then they first chose him. They chose God and God responded, okay, then I choose you too. 
But Jesus tells us that we did not choose him, but he first chose us. You choose Christ because you were first chosen. It's not the other way around. And how do we know this? Because he chose you before you were even created. Election happens from eternity, just as Paul says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 You have been predestined unto salvation. You were not predestined because you chose salvation. And why? Because predestination is from eternity. But we also know this, point number four, predestination is to holiness. What's the final stage of election? How do we know when God is vindicated? How do we know when this predestining thing that we bicker about, how do I know when it's over? What's, what's God bringing me to? What am I being predestined to, ultimately? Well, the text tells us it's holiness. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. You want to know when predestination is finished, when God's work is complete in you? It's when you stand before him on judgment day with a resurrected body, free from every deceit of sin. One of my favorite quotes of all time, a pastor was one time asked what he's most looking forward to in heaven. And he said something along the lines of, I'm just looking forward to not sinning. It's so easy when we complain about this world to complain about everything but us. I'm so sick of Putin in Russia. I'm so sick of cancer. I'm so sick of poverty. I'm so sick of tyranny. Everything else is the problem with our world. But you want to know who is the main villain in your life? You want to know who is the biggest problem in your life? It ain't Biden. It ain't Putin. It's you. It's your sin. And guess what? God's going to eradicate it. As holy as Jesus Christ lived his earthly life, God's going to get you there. You realize this. You are going to be as holy as the incarnate Christ. Not in his divine essence, but in his humanity, you are going to be made, as Romans says, into the image of Christ. You're going to be perfectly holy. Isn't that amazing? That's what you've been predestined to. You haven't just been predestined to, to, to go into some sky fairy place and play a harp on a cloud. You've been predestined to be holy. To stand before God and God looks at you and says, I see no blame, no unworthiness in this person. Glory to God. This... This idea of sanctification being the end result of predestination. I've been reading a Puritan lately named Thomas Boston, and I love this quote from him. He said this, The promise of sanctification is indeed the chief promise of the covenant made to the elect. Among the rest of that kind, it shines like the moon among lesser stars. Of all of God's promises to you, you know what's the best one? You're going to be holy. Sanctification is our chief promise. The victory of election is when we stand together, united in the resurrection, holy, blameless, united in love. That's God's plan for us. That's when his work is complete. We've been predestined to holiness. Point number five, we've been predest predestination is by God's good pleasure. The ESV doesn't render it this way, but your Bibles might say something along the lines of his good pleasure in verse 5. Read verse 5 with me. 
He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Or your Bible might say something like according to the good purpose of his pleasure or something along those lines. This is such an important verse because it answers the question that I know you're all waiting for me to get to. I know that this is ultimately the question you all have. This sounds so unfair. This doesn't sound just. Here's the question you have. Why me? If it's unconditional, why me? Why not others? Paul begins the book of Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 4 by essentially saying, I wish so badly my fellow Jews were saved, I'd be willing to give up my salvation for them. In other words, he's saying, why me? Why Paul and not Paul's cousin? Why you and not your neighbor? And guess what? The Bible actually answers this question for us. We ask this question all the time and the Bible answers it for us. The problem is it doesn't give us the answer we're looking for. Why did God elect you and not someone that you love, that you're praying for, that you care about. Here's the answer, verse 5. He elected you to be adopted according to the purpose of his will. That's the answer. You see, we're all programmed to think conditionally. We're programmed to think election is conditional. Why me? What did I do? What did I do to earn it? That's the problem. Election is not earned. This is the good pleasure of his will. That's why you... And until we learn to be content with the answer that Paul himself gives us, we'll never be content with predestination. This is the answer Paul gives us. It's according to the good pleasure of his will. And as long as that's not enough for us, Paul's theology will never be enough for us. This was the plan God made according to the presence of his will. But I have to point out an irony here. To me, it's so iron ironic that all of these non-Calvinist positions try so hard to make free will and our choice the foundation of election. God chose us because of something we chose to do. He, he predestined us because of something he saw a decision I would make. So their basis, why you, their answer is free will. Why you, free will. Why you, your will. Why you, your choice. But what does Paul say in verse 5? Why were you predestined to holiness? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your will? Because of your will? Because of your choice? No. According to the purpose of his will. You are not saved by free will. You're saved by God's will. The election was not according to the purpose of your will. It was according to the purpose and good pleasure of his will. It doesn't mean you don't believe in time. We're going to get to that in verses 13 and 14. But the ultimate spiritual blessing, the ultimate foundation, the reason you get to go to heaven one day and give all glory to God and none to yourself is because of this truth. We believe because he first chose us. That's why you have no reason to boast over your neighbor. Because it wasn't according to the good pleasure of your will. But God's. Let us now conclude, and I'm sorry, we've gone longer than I wanted to. This is just a fun topic. With our last point, which also serves as a really fitting conclusion. This is a really fitting conclusion for a sermon like this. The sixth thing we need to learn about predestination, we've learned that predestination is of individuals and that it's in Christ and that it's from eternity and that it's to holiness and that it's by God's good pleasure. The last thing we learn is what it's for. It's for God's glory. Why? What does God get out of this? Why did he do this and not some other way? What's God get out of it? Glory, verse 6. 
God did all this, why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What's the ultimate goal for God in predestination? Praise. The purpose of election is to bring praise to God's grace. God has an infinite, eternal grace, and its grace is unlike anybody else's. And because his grace is so infinite and so boundless and so endless, it has a glory to it, a glory that no other act of grace carries. God's grace has a glory, and God wants people to see that glory and give praise to it, and predestination was a means to that end. God predestined to bring praise to his glorious grace. Just as Paul began, blessed be God. And this is what makes me so sad about the contemporary scene. Typically for us, predestination is one of two things. It's a deep, academic, theologically rigorous doctrine that we debate, or it's a dreadful doctrine that we hate. Even for people who believe it, even for Calvinists, I've been in this place myself. Predestination typically falls into two categories, something I debate on Facebook and something I wish wasn't true. It's just this academic point of debate or it's dreadful. I know many, many people, many, many reformed people who say I believe in election because I just, I can't get out of it. I just see it in the text. But admittedly, I don't want to believe in this. I don't like it. It's a dreadful doctrine, even for people who affirm it. But notice how for Paul, election is neither of those things. He does not present it like some deep academic point of debate. He presents it very simply, very matter of fact. But most importantly, for Paul, election is not this truth that he's reluctantly giving us. Right? Ephesians 1 does not begin with, okay, in Ephesus, yeah, you guys asked me about that election thing. I was really hoping you weren't going to bring that up. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you what Jesus told me, but you're not going to like it. Okay? But yes, te technically God does predestine some people and not predestine others. And I, I'm sorry, guys. I know. I, I, was, I wasn't trying to bring this up before. Is Paul reluctant? Is Paul embarrassed? Paul is bringing this up, not reluctantly. He's bringing this up to get us to praise God. He's bringing this up because he is thrilled. He's excited. This is a point of worship for him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Come on, Ephesians, praise God. And then they raise their hand. Well, why should I praise God? What has God done for me? to make him worthy of praise. Here's what he did for you. Even as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that you should become holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as to himself through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul is giving you election to make you praise. He's not embarrassed. Election is not supposed to be something that we reluctantly teach and secretly wish wasn't true. It's supposed to bring us on our knees in praise. And I submit to you the reason it does that is because there is no system of salvation more humbling than the doctrine of election. Why is it that it brings about so much praise to God? Because it's only those who truly believe in Paul's understanding of election who can truly, on Judgment Day, say, I am here only because of God. 
I don't give 99% credit to God and then 1% credit to my choice, which caused my election. I am here because of the grace of God. I am not better than my neighbor. I'm not smarter than my neighbor. I'm not more important than my neighbor. I have simply become the recipient of grace. For election, for Paul, election is something that should make us swell with praise. Paul praises God for a salvation such as this, that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ loved us from before creation in spite of all that we would do and then sought to accomplish our salvation in Christ to the praise of His glory. What mercy, what grace, what power. You see, I I did not get excited for this sermon today because I was excited to debate you. I did not enter this pulpit because I wanted to prove a debate point right. I, I did not stand before this, behind this Bible to debate. I stood behind this Bible excited and anxious to herald the blessed news of our merciful, gracious, predestining God who before the foundation of the world according to His good pleasure determined to predestine and elect people to a salvation that would be accomplished through His Son all in order to showcase the glory of His grace. I came to proclaim that message. That predestination is of individuals. It's in Christ. It's from eternity. It's to holiness. It's by God's good pleasure and it's for God's glory. How glorious is His grace, saints. How deep is the Father's love for us. 